This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Do you hear us? I am, citizen. Good day to you. Good day to you. This will be weird, but did you happen to catch the presidential debate last night? (laughs) That is we are a little re- weird, and I don't <laughs> understand your technologies, but they're pretty amazing to well, me. Well, this is the one that um, did not feature Donald Trump. The Republican Party debated, and Donald Trump was not there. He has a feud with Fox going on. And I was just wondering what you thought of the candidates that are running on the Republican side and the Democratic side this year. Well, I heard one or two candidates speak for states' rights, uh, which matters to me a great deal. I believe that states are more competent than the United States to settle their problems. And I heard some libertarian thought from time to time, and that's more or less my philosophy. But uh, I was very alarmed in hearing these candidates talk about their desire to use the armed forces of the United States to meddle in affairs in countries across the seas, in fact, some countries so far away that most Americans have never heard of them or would be able to place them on a map. As you know, I'm I'm an isolationist. I believe the United States should mind its own business and take advantage of the 3,000-mile ocean that separates us from the insanity of the old world. Yeah, I think that moat, as you call it, is still a lot more relevant than we are led to believe these days. I think the fear of terror is is more a fear than a reality and that the Republicans are playing it. And uh, I know that sounds terribly partisan, but you brought it up. Well, I I feel that way, too. You know, in my time during the Quasi War in 1798, which was an undeclared naval war with France that was undertaken by my friend John Adams and, and the Federalist Congress, there was all this talk of invasion uh, by Napoleon or by the French, and even French intellectuals who came to the United States as refugees from the French Revolution were mistreated, and the alien and sedition laws were passed that were very um, – there were betrayals of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States and all of the Bill of Rights. Uh, so, so countries panic. We panicked in 1798, and I was very much alarmed by that, and I felt – that if we would just calm down and realize that not everyone who is not an American is our enemy, and even if there are French refugees who come here who are who dislike some of our policies, that doesn't make them uh, bad people, and it doesn't mean we don't want them as citizens in our country or at least as guests. So this kind of war, terror hysteria and fear that outsiders are somehow going to show up and undermine American sovereignty and American happiness almost always proves to be mythological and wrongheaded. And so I hope the American people are smart enough to be skeptical of any fear-mongery by their candidates. Yeah, that's easy. How interesting, though, that you bring that up, because the Alien and Sedition Act is probably the greatest transgression against our constitutional values we've ever seen. And there it was, the founding fathers who were doing it. We were just a dozen years into our new uh, experimental republic. You know, we were the we were the most idealistic uh, concept for a nation that had ever been engendered in the mind of man. And here we were, as Thomas Paine said, starting the world over again. And yet the first time there was tension between us and our old ally France, 
the Congress of the United States overreacted in a in a monstrous way and passed these laws. The alien law uh, allowed uh, the government to expel from this country anybody it, it regarded as a security risk who was not a natural-born American citizen. And the sedition law made it a crime to criticize the administration of President Adams. So, so if I had written a public letter or even a private one saying that Adams' policies are wrongheaded and he clearly has lost sight of the principles of the American Revolution, that mild-mannered criticism could have put me in jail under the sedition law. And Mm -hmm. the naturalization law, which I think makes some sense in your time to go back to look at, changed from five years to 14 years the amount of time a foreigner had to live in this country before he could even begin to apply to be a citizen of the United States. So these paranoia, um, insecurities, fear, uh, panic, uh, scapegoating foreigners, this, is, uh, this came, as you said, very, very early in our national experiment and really disappointed me. Yeah. Well, maybe it was maybe it's understandable that you would be insecure about the republic because it was so young. Here 230 years later, I I think we should have a little more it's more than that now, isn't it? Uh I I would think we should have more, I don't know, confidence in our republic in our citizens in how homogenous we're becoming. And and by the way, if I just may say so, um I, I don't mean to undermine, as perhaps I have, the seriousness of immigration issues and terrorism issues. Those aren't the same, but but, uh, but those are very real, legitimate concerns by Americans. I just think that they're being trumped up too much in this election cycle. Well, I agree. And of course, you, you punned on the word Trump. Uh, this sort of thing happens. That's my point. But the the better American spirit is to be skeptical of any of this fear-mongery. You know, for example, the French invading the United States in my time. If Napoleon had wanted to do that, which he didn't, he would have had to amass tens of thousands of troops in the low countries and then put them on ships about the size of a large yacht and then send them for a month or two months or maybe three months across the Atlantic Ocean. By the time they got here, they would be weak probably hungry, maybe suffering from scurvy. Uh, There was no realistic way that the French were going to invade the United States, and yet John Adams believed it might happen, and his Federalist Congress believed it might happen, and they spent a lot of money for no good purpose and precipitated a crisis involving George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. And all of this was a pipe dream. In your time, you have a huge army, uh, a huge navy, the largest in the world, You have an empire uh, with bases in other countries all over the world. There's no realistic chance that any foreign nation or group of individuals could do serious damage to the United States. And yet you have whipped yourself or some of your politicians have whipped you into a kind of alien hating frenzy over this thing. That's exactly the kind of thing that Americans should be too sensible to accept. Um, I wanted to talk to you. We were talking about the debate, and it just makes me think about the way we elect presidents in this country. There's the Iowa caucus, which is kind of this odd, quaint thing, and then on to New Hampshire, South Carolina, and the SEC. But you know what's bothering me a little bit? Ted Cruz recently um, 
made disparaging remarks about New York values and New Yorkers generally. And people were a little struck by that. But I didn't think it was such a dangerous statement from him politically because if he wins the primary, he doesn't have to worry about New York voters anyway. All those electoral votes are going to go to the Democrat, regardless of who it is. So he can, if he thinks, gain gain some political ground by saying a terrible thing about the most populous state in the country because he won't get their electoral votes anyway. And I thought, well, that's a shame. Uh, the Republicans in Illinois and New York should have their votes counted and their voices heard. It should total in somehow in the presidential election. Stand by. I have to get that, President Jefferson. Uh, hey, I'm talking to President Jefferson. Don't call me right now. Okay. Back to you, sir. Well, I had my own difficulties with the people of New York. Um, Aaron Burr was a New Yorker. Alexander Hamilton was a New Yorker. And they gave me nightmares throughout my political career because they were so ambitious and so unscrupulous in their politics. But, but I would say this. If a candidate in your time wants to be the president of the entire United States, yeah. it is not in his interest to make fun of or to be – uh, antagonistic to the people of any state whatsoever, especially one as powerful and as highly populated as New York. In other words, it's one thing to get the nomination by appealing to the most extreme elements in your own party. But if you, you can't be the president of the United States unless, unless you wish to govern all of the people. And I dare say this cruise spends more time in New York than he does in small villages in the panhandle of Texas. He probably enjoys the restaurants and the theater <laughs> and the museums yeah. and the commerce and all the amenities of a great city and only pretends for demagogic purposes to think New York is Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because he wants to whip his own extremist um, supporters into some sort of a frenzy about great cities of the United States. How can you be president when you divide the people in a deliberately uh, malicious and false manner. Yeah, well, you, you first win the primary that way, and then you win the general election with a different face. And I'm not, this isn't about Ted Cruz. I'm actually trying to criticize the Electoral College uh, process. Yes. Well, I was, the, as you know, a victim of the Electoral College. I uh, clearly won the election of 1800, what I call the second American Revolution. No, no historian, no citizen of the United States doubted that. But because I tied in the Electoral College with my running mate, Aaron Burr, the vice president, the Constitution could not differentiate between us. In other words, every American knew that I was president and he was vice president. But in terms of our Constitution, it was a tie. And the Constitution says when there's a tie in the Electoral College, it goes to the House of Representatives, and then the House of Representatives votes. And so I I was elected president, and I had to sit through 36 ballots in the House of Representatives before good sense finally prevailed, and the Federalists withdrew and allowed me to be installed as the third president. So I can tell you I am not a friend to this Electoral College. Well, I understand the difference between states and citizens, and we need to protect the sovereignty of the states and value them. But do you think we've come to a point where we should just count total votes? Al Gore would have been president in 2000, perhaps. John Kerry would have been much closer to becoming president previously. He would have changed maybe the tone of the debates themselves right now. 
Well, you know, the Constitution was written in 1787. I was not one of its authors. And the Constitution makers were attempting a kind of conservative reaction to to the problems that had arisen under the Articles of Confederation. And they felt that the American people were not to be trusted in popular vote to name their president. They felt that the American people would make bad decisions from time to time, and therefore that there should be a kind of college of cardinals that stands between the people and the presidency. So that if the people had, say, voted for Aaron Burr for president in 1800, maybe the College of Cardinals, the Electoral College, would void that election and say, he's a bad man, dangerous, we would prefer to place Colonel Hamilton uh, in the presidential chair. So it was designed as an anti-democratic hedge against popular democracy. And in my time, I would have disagreed with that because I don't think the people should be despised. They are sovereign. And in your time, it's outrageous to think that there is a body that stands between the people and their choice for the leader of this country. Did you think that women should be able to vote? Did you think that non-propertied men should be able to vote? No, no no women, of course, because their their vote comes through their husband or their brother or their father or their uncle. Right. And what about men who don't have property or money or something like that? White men with no property, I think, should be allowed to vote and hold public office, or the property qualification should be very tiny, or we should grant uh, men without property some free land in the West. In other words, I believe in universal white manhood suffrage, not for Negroes, not for women, not for Indians, but... I was radical. You may think I am um, conservative, but I was radical in my time in arguing for universal white manhood suffrage. Oh, really? That was seen as progressive? Oh, yes, because most people believe that, uh, as Hamilton put it, only the wise, the rich, and the well-born should govern this country. And they had huge property requirements. You had to own very substantial amount of property in almost every state, even to vote during my lifetime. And so I said, wait a minute. That seems to me to be a sort of an attempt to to maintain a kind of lingering aristocracy. Let's make it possible for every white man um, who is a, a bona fide citizen in the community to vote in elections and to be uh, selected by his compatriots mm. for public office. Uh, the listeners of this podcast probably want me to go after you about what you just said about women or what you say generally about blacks, but that's that's my point. Look at what I'm dealing with here. These guys, this guy, didn't even think necessarily that all men should be voting, so white men for that matter. So, boy, what obstacles you guys put in front of the process. Well, but think of it this way. you know, for When you think of my statement that I just made that white males should all be able to vote, it looks like a pitiful, very particularist way of seeing America, that just white men somehow are the are the, the citizens and, and the power brokers. But when I proposed that in my time, I was denounced as a dangerous radical, that this was regarded as something so far beyond the, the pale that people regarded me as an irresponsible statesman for suggesting that a white man without substantial property should ever be allowed to vote at all. So you have to put these things in context. You know, the, the the revolution that we set in motion on the 4th of July, 1776, is still um, undermining 
traditional ways of seeing power and authority even to your time, and it will never stop. It will never stop until every human being is treated identically under the machine of the law, but we were not able to achieve even part of that during my lifetime, and, and frankly, I was not interested in taking it beyond white men. Here's my last question for you today. We started talking about the debate and the candidates that were up on the stage. Rand Paul was able to join the group because Donald Trump decided not to debate. I like Rand Paul of those candidates. I think he's maybe the smartest guy up there. I don't think he cares that much about what other people think, and I I think he's uh, he to me he's an interesting character. I think he's virtuous. Uh, true to his own principles by that. I mean, I, I wonder who of those candidates you liked the best or would vote for, Would you would vote for. Would you, would you care to share that with us? I can try, but keep in mind, uh, I barely understand the technologies and the rhetoric of your time, and I lived between 1743 and 1826. But I will say this, this Rand uh, is, is very intelligent, and he's a libertarian. and He, he likes you, by the way. And he likes me. He misquotes me from time to time. But <laughs> he that, does. <laughs> but that's, that's neither here nor there, I suppose. But, but here's the problem. He may be too intelligent for the American people because he doesn't he, – he, he speaks as if we all understand mm-hmm. the philosophy behind his uh, opinions. Yeah. But I think most Americans don't quite – understand what a libertarian view and an isolationist view of the world means. He needs, I hate to say this, but he needs to find Thomas Paine's capacity to say these things in a way that average Americans can understand. And I think if they understood him, they would agree with you that he is far and away the most intelligent and clear-headed of these candidates. And he's the one that's most in resonance with the founding generation who believed in limited government and isolationism and peace and that states should solve these problems, not the federal government. But yeah. you heard him talking last night about abortion, for example, and it got a little confusing because he was he was kind of stuck between his states' rights philosophy, but that looked like he was insufficiently outraged by abortion, and so he had then to jump into a kind of weak uh, nationalist view of the thing. If he had just said, look, as a, as a principle – as a principled believer in states' rights, I cannot agree that that national solutions to our problems are the right ones. Maybe the people would have understood his answer, but instead it looked muddled. No, oh, it looks like a dodge. All right, well then, he's too complicated or too simple. Um, who you... hasn't learned to speak in a language really used by Americans. <laughs> That's, that is so true. I, I And sometimes it gets him into trouble because I think his thoughts are nuanced and 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 we don't have the time, energy, or capacity to figure out what he meant. So then, so then, who who do you think we should pick, or or would you pick? So this is the way I would look at it, John. I I differentiate between the demagogues and the people who are speaking reasonable truth. So take um, Rand Paul. He is clearly saying what he actually believes is the right philosophy of government, and and he accurately portrays his own policies as a United States senator. People can decide whether they want him or not. The person who next most clearly speaks his mind and is not afraid to say things that might be at odds with the extremists of his party is this governor of Ohio, Kasich. 
and the third person is former Governor Jeb Bush. All three of them, you can see, are attempting to provide a nuanced and intelligent and somewhat centrist answer to the nation's problems. And the others are inevitably demagogues who just say what they think the the crazy people on the right wing of their party want to hear. You can hear when they say some of the things that they say that they don't actually mean it, that they're just throwing some sort of meat to the to the hogs. And when they do this, they're cheapening the process. So I would rule out anyone who says things that he clearly doesn't mean. And you can tell by the the, the heightening of their rhetoric and by the stridency of the way that they say it, that they ha- they're not really thinking on their feet. They're just spouting something that they hope will appeal to one branch of their party. Last thing I'll say is, and this is maybe the saddest thing I've said, it's really entertaining, though. It's really, it's, it's a fun show. <laughs> it's, you know, in my, I just have to, I know we're closing our conversation here, but I just have to say, in my time, such things never happened. You know, such a different era. The idea that you can bring together eight or nine people who want to be the president of the United States and somehow through your technology to make that available to 330 million Americans at the same time. It's it's an amazing thing you've done. I mean, you could actually, if you ever got serious, have a democracy. If you ever got serious, you could be the most Republican, enlightened, self-governing nation in the history of the world, but instead you seem so much more eager for bread and circuses and for a kind of carnival. It makes no sense to me. It's as if Andrew Jackson and Aaron Burr got a hold of the country and destroyed it. No, don't say that. I can't let you close our podcast on that. Say something hopeful, Mr. Jefferson. Well, what's hopeful is that the average American has a greater opportunity to understand uh, politics and government than ever before in human history. You have more resources at your fingertips than any person who ever lived on Earth up till this moment in this conversation. And so if you want to govern yourself, if you want to live in something like a democracy or a republic, it is still possible. In our time, we could never, you know, how many people could attend a debate? The candidates themselves couldn't get to a debate. And the people, 60, 80 people uh, who, who happen to live in that village might show up. You live in a time when it's possible to understand the world. And and as Francis Bacon said, knowledge is power. And so if you will get serious as a people, you could live in paradise. But you have to get serious and want to live in a republic and not in a consumer plutocracy. 